Coming up on episode 21 of Put It on the Board, it is chaos time. Uh, A chaotic week in White Sox world. Uh, The Chicago White Sox, while playing baseball games that seemingly nobody is paying attention to, have had all hell break loose behind the scenes and in the locker room, and we're here to break it down and react to it. I mean, everything from a Tim Anderson fight with Jose Ramirez to the latest allegations from former White Sox pitcher Keenan Middleton about the culture within the clubhouse, some alleged altercations and fights between players and Rick Hahn's comments about all of it, plus Pedro Grifol and more. So a ton to discuss. It has just been a, a crazy, crazy chaotic week in White Sox world that baseball seems so insignificant and we've got so much to talk about. So let's put some crooked numbers up on that board. Here we go. You can put it on the board. Yeah. Yeah. This is episode 21 of the Put It on the Board podcast. And we are going to have to dive right into things here, Noah, because. Uh, baseball games have been played and I don't really remember a ton of them and none of them seemingly mattered until this weekend. And it all started with the Tim Anderson and Jose Ramirez fight that has now turned into just an avalanche of things. And when it rains, it pours seemingly with the white Sox and news after news uh, incident after incident Things are ugly on the South side, um, and we have a ton of things to break down. I, I I would have loved to sit on here and do a podcast with you about the addition of Brent Honeywell to the White Sox team, which I was very excited about, actually. I, I liked, you know, what they've kind of done here in acquiring some of these potential high upside players for cheap, uh, but that has been overshadowed to the hundredth degree in recent stuff. So uh, I guess, Noah, do we have to start with the Anderson Ramirez brawl? Is that where this kind of all begins to unravel? I mean, if we're talking about some of the stuff that came up, I think it began years ago, but well, for, right, the, for the but purposes you know of I mean. this podcast, I mean, the, the chaos I think began to unfold on Saturday evening in Cleveland. Um, so yeah, we can go ahead and start with that. So, yeah, I, like that's kind of what I was referring to is <sighs> the White Sox were seemingly irrelevant where they had gotten to that point where you're a team that was supposed to contend that's not contending that traded away all their good players and is now just going to meddle the rest of the way and we'll see in the off season. That's where I thought the White Sox were. And turns out they're not done disappointing. Saturday night in Cleveland, Jose Ramirez hits a double, slides into second base on White Sox shortstop Tim Anderson. Anderson, so I guess this is where we have to start here. I felt like it was Anderson lingering over Ramirez for what Ramirez felt like was an unnecessary and probably was an unnecessary amount of time. Ramirez took offense, started chirping, started pointing at Anderson, Anderson said, okay, you want to talk? Let's go. It is, let's start there 
is that your interpretation of how this thing went down? Because I've seen some mixed recounts of, of you know, events. Who started this thing to you? Well, it's hard to tell because it's hard to know, like, specifically what was said. Uh, it didn't really look to me like Anderson said anything to Ramirez at the time. Uh, I could see where you think that Anderson might have lingered over him too long. Well, he was standing uh, right Ramirez, on top of him. and Yeah, Ramirez kind of slid in, like, between Anderson's legs, and Anderson, like, took a minute before he actually moved. Uh, and He didn't I mean, really move, and Aunt Ramirez from, which, fine, like, I, Tim Anderson is not required to move there, which is why I would say Jose Ramirez started this, but I think it was Ramirez taking exception to how Anderson was standing over him or on top of him or whatever it was. Yeah, we may not know exactly what happened, but to me, it looked like Ramirez got up. He wasn't happy. He was saying something to Anderson. He was kind of pointing and waving his hand in Anderson's face. And Anderson said, all right, enough talk. Let's hash this out like men. And unfortunate for Anderson because it didn't end up going super well for him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, they dropped the gloves. They uh, put put the Dukes up. Tim goes in, I think he threw like two punches, landed a couple of them, I feel like. He had a couple body shots in there, but, you know, Kopex running over to try and grab Anderson from the mound, and uh, Tim got a couple shots in, but it kind of as he's getting held back, Jose Ramirez, so I want to I put this in two parts. Number one, got very lucky, because Jose Ramirez is flailing his arms in Tim Anderson's direction, kind of just throwing his hands out there part two is the fact that he and by the way his punch open fisted punch like hit him with the inside of his hand that's not how you punch somebody it was a very bad punch on jose ramirez's part objectively it's not how you punch you'll hurt yourself but he does land it right on the side of tim's head and tim does fall down and i think tim got knocked out like i uh I wanted to, I try, I looked at the video, Noah, 10 to 15 different times being like, okay, how can I spin this for TA to make this like, not that bad. And every time I looked at it, it was pretty damn bad. Like it it was pretty bad just about any way I sliced it. <laughs> yeah. It's really unfortunate. I, I kind of came to the same conclusion that there's just not really a way you can look at this that looks good for Tim Anderson. And it sucks for him because even though most of his issues this year have been self-created, it, it hasn't been a very good year for him on or off the field. So, you know, it's unfortunate to see another situation where Anderson just looks bad well, to everybody. And You can't put the Dukes up and get knocked out. You can't be the guy who's yeah. like, okay, let's tussle, and then be the guy that's on his butt 15 seconds later. That's a bad look. Now, did Jose Ramirez get lucky? Yeah. I think Tim Anderson wins that fight nine out of 10 times, but the one time it was on national television, you lost. And so uh bad, bad look for Tim, even worse. I think that he's stumbling off the field. Like that was a, an alarming video. It wasn't just like, Oh, he got hit and it surprised him and he fell backwards. That's where I was like, okay, no, you got knocked out because you're having issues standing up and Yasmani Grandal's helping him limp off the field, and then Andrew Vaughn's carrying him like a little boy back to the dugout to say, Tim, no, hey, we're not we're not going back out there, buddy. 
The best part of the whole thing, though, was the person who struggled to get off the field the most was Eloy Jimenez, who nobody's yeah. really surprised by this, but well, he barely gets out onto the field and he comes up limping and then he's limping around for the rest of the fight. And it's like, of course, of course, Eloy gets hurt here because why not? Because, you know, that's just what he does. He, just, he gets hurt. Yeah, I mean, hilariously white socks. <laughs> Yeah. For Eloy to all come off hobbit, hopping on one leg after a fight after your shortstop got knocked out. It was very 2023 White Sox in a nutshell. Um, I, I don't know. I, I did like Michael Co- Michael Kopech's comments afterwards. I think might have been the only plus of the whole incident was him saying, you know, he, he took exception to it and say whatever you want. We're not playing our best baseball, but we're not going to get bullied by a team that's also playing under 500 baseball. I like that was a nice little roast on Kopech's part. Fine, like one tiny victory that the White Sox had of that incident. And then I guess, you know, winning the game and winning the next game after that as well uh, and leaving Cleveland with a series win was a nice little consolation prize. But yeah, I I mean, this is really just an unfortunate for Tim And I think a really sad ending to what I believe is going to be Tim Anderson's White Sox career. Um, I saw this tweeted out. I actually didn't think about it this way, but it was, I want to say it was maybe Herb Lawrence. I'm not 100% sure. I'd like to give credit though. But uh, he was saying, you know, Robin Ventura was an MVP caliber player, had a couple awesome years. Most people remember him for getting beat up by Nolan Ryan. And there, there are a few people in baseball history that have awesome careers and are remembered for one iconic moment, uh, one famous moment, whether that be good or bad. And for a while, I thought Tim Anderson's moment was going to be the field of dreams home run, the walk-off home run right in the, the heart of the White Sox contention window as the face of the franchise that let you know the Sox are here. Tim Anderson is a dude. And 25 years from now, I thought we'd be talking about that Tim Anderson homer. I now fear for Tim Anderson that his legacy as a Major League Baseball player will be not the batting title champion, not, you know, the White Sox face of the franchise shortstop, uh, not the Field of Dreams home run, but that dude that got knocked out by Jose Ramirez. And that sucks. It sucks for White Sox fans. It sucks for Tim Anderson fans. And it sucks for Tim Anderson if that is what his legacy ends up being. But like you said, it's also a self-created problem that have kind of been uh, led to this unraveling over the years. Yeah, it sucks. I mean, but again, self-created problem. I want to I want to touch on Robin Ventura really quick because I want to point out what my memory of Robin Ventura was, which what I remember him as is the failed attempt at managing the White Sox, uh, where he then, well, I don't even know, was it one year or two years that he managed the team? And then basically was like, yeah, I'm not cut out for this. He was, and He was manager down. for a while, uh, more than two years. I believe it was five years. Uh, that doesn't sound right. He but. inherited the team in 2012. Um, and they and the next guy was Ricky Renteria, who came in in 2017. Yeah, maybe you're right. I don't know. So I believe Robin left with the rebuild, which happened in the off season of 2016. He managed those Todd Frazier teams as well. So uh, 
Yeah, I mean, Robin was a failed manager, too. It's uh, another reason people say, hey, if you're a legend for a franchise, don't go manage that franchise or own that franchise or do anything that could potentially damage your legacy or coach. If we're talking football, don't go coach the franchise. I mean, I guess Chicago has a pretty good example of that in Mike Ditka, but there's a another a lot of bad examples over the years of guys who have tried to, you know, do things for an organization after their playing careers that have damaged their legacy. Um, and unfortunately, recency bias wins out on a lot of those things. So when you look at Tim Anderson, if this is his last year with the White Sox, if this is, um, you know, his swan song on the South side, and this is how the season has gone, and these are the lasting parting memories he's giving Sox fans, I unfortunately don't think the memory of Tim Anderson is going to be quite as positive as it should have been, given the player that he was for as long as he was. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Anderson could have helped himself too, and he didn't. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of this is self-caused. He could have helped himself by, you know, making better decisions. But just in terms of after all this is said and done, after the fight, Tim Anderson could have talked to the media and he could have said, you know what, I he got me. And I think that would have gone over a lot better. Instead, what we got was Tim Anderson refuses to comment. Tim Anderson tweets a bunch of cryptic tweets. And then Jose Ramirez comes out today and says, I tried to apologize to him. He didn't answer me. Yeah. And now it just makes Tim look worse. Whereas what he should have done was gotten in front of the camera and said, I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have picked this fight. And uh, props to Jose Ramirez because he knocked me on my butt, you know? Yeah, I so, mean, it, I, that's the White Sox in a nutshell, though, too, is and, and some sports franchises are just like this. It will always be a mystery to me, but what I don't think many sports professionals understand as somebody who works in sports media is that the media is generally forgiving to the self-loathing. The media is generally willing to give a second and third chance to those who acknowledge their shortcomings and the fans, I believe follow what the media uh, kind of how the media lead them. So yeah, it, Tim Anderson comes out and is like, damn, knock me on the ground. Damn. I got KO'd. He's just like, we shouldn't have done that. Uh, I do think that goes over way better. And uh, yeah, the refusing to comment and, and this goes organization top to bottom, which we'll get into here. But the more you spin things, the more you try and look like you're not the one in the wrong, like you didn't get owned. You make yourself look worse. It's Mark Zuckerberg. I don't know if you saw this where he was at no point did I get choked out in that video as there's a video of him getting like choked out doing jujitsu. It's like at no point was Mr. Zuckerberg uh, unconscious. It's like, all right, so we know you were unconscious now. Um, And I guess that brings us to what came out just after the fact, which is Jesse Rogers, a great insider for ESPN. ESPN staff writer wrote the following headline, ex-White Sox reliever Keenan Middleton rips clubs, no rules culture. And 
you know, kind of paraphrasing what Middleton said was essentially the White Sox have no structure, they have no discipline, and they have no rules as an organization. He cited players missing PFPs. He cited a rookie relief pitcher falling asleep in the bullpen during the game. He cited multiple players who uh, just didn't put in the work and didn't feel like they should be there. People missing team meetings. And if that happens, it was just okay, is what Middleton said. Uh, He then followed up and said, I wouldn't say anything bad about the pitching staff. We went about our work the right way. I think the rest of the team struggled to do the right thing. Throwing these uh, position players under the bus. Quick note, we'll get into it, but I did find it interesting that he said dudes were falling asleep in the bullpen and missing PFPs and then said, but the pitching staff handled our work fine. I thought that was a bit of a, you know, contradicting himself. That didn't make much sense. But then Jesse Rogers was on the radio and he didn't hold back uh, from naming names. And he said, Yasmani Grandal is no friend to the pitching staff. Yoan Moncada is not a good teammate. He's not there for his teammate and he's not there for the team. Eloy Jimenez, while happy-go-lucky, does not put in the necessary work to succeed. And I don't feel like any White Sox fan was surprised to hear about these issues because Keenan Middleton is not the first guy to bring these up. Dallas Keuchel talked about these too. And uh, Lance Lynn then comes out and corroborates it by saying, Key, I was here a lot longer than Key. He didn't, uh, he didn't lie or something like that. I'm paraphrasing what Lynn said, but he basically says, yeah, pretty accurate. So uh, loaded stuff, a lot of stuff, Noah, where, where do you, how do you react to this? I mean, this is like as bad as I can remember the White Sox being really the only time I remember feeling this way is right before the the blow up, right before the rebuild with the sale jerseys and the Adam LaRoche stuff and uh, all of the shenanigans with Adam Eaton. And, you know, like that team looked like it needed to get destroyed. And that seems to be where the White Sox are at. Yeah, so uh, just to follow up on the Lance Lynn stuff, he was on AJ Pierzynski's podcast, uh, and AJ kind of asked him about it. He he said, Lance, did you see what Keenan Middleton said? Lance said, yeah, I saw it. And AJ said, do you have any thoughts on it? And Lance was pretty careful about what he said. Um, the way that he phrased it was, I'll tell you all the things that I think Keenan was wrong about. And then he was silent. Radio silence, yep. So... Without saying Keenan wasn't wrong, that's essentially what Lance Lynn said. Um, and like you mentioned, Dallas Keuchel had some comments about the team culture on his way out. Jose Abreu was quoted at the beginning of the season saying this team was not a real family. So it really makes you wonder if all these players on their way out are saying things about the issues in the locker room. If I mean, at some point you have to start to believe that there's some truth to it. Um Ah, it's not Honestly, starting yeah. to, like I and what so I guess we'll transition here because Rick Hahn speaks to the media today and basically says that Keenan Middleton's full of BS 
that he's absolutely making this up. Um, And I'm trying to find the exact quotes, but said things like, well, we had uh, one position player who is allowed to nap in the clubhouse as part of his treatment plan because he has sleep issues. At no point was a reliever napping in the bullpen. By the way, Rick, Keenan Middleton's in the bullpen every day. You're not. Uh, so I, I I trust the guy that's there a little bit more. Um, what else did he say? He said that, uh, you know, that some of these issues were just absolutely fabricated. Uh, you know, he said that he said they had a young player who missed infield practice one day and that there were consequences that they made this player do extra infield for the next three days after missing. Right. And he he says Andrew Benintendi spoke up during a team meeting one time. Oh, and then he proceeds to say, hey, and we were negotiating with Keenan Middleton on an extension, or maybe that got released by somebody else. But he does say Keenan Middleton was scolded for unprofessional behavior before we traded him, and he approached me to apologize uh, after the trade was made. So Rick just did a full, like, 180 reverse uno back to you on to Keenan Middleton, said, we're not unprofessional, you're unprofessional, and tried to make this a he said, she said, but, like, who's buying Rick Hahn's story right now? Well, see, this is where I was a little confused, because Hahn said most of that stuff, like, basically discrediting what Middleton said, but then he went on to say, you know, we've identified that there's a clubhouse issue. And, you know, over the past few weeks, we've started to address it and we're going to continue to address it. So I don't know. They traded for Trace Thompson. Is that like, OK, this is our solution to the the leadership issue in the clubhouse is we're just going to trade for Trace Thompson and call it good. Is anybody like, buying that the clubhouse issue was Lucas Giolito and Jake Berger? Because no. I'm not, I'm certainly no, not. Not at all. So like, the, what did you do over the last few weeks that addressed the clubhouse issue? If the guys that are being named as the issue are still the guys in your lineup today, you didn't do anything. So like, that's why I'm saying like, who's buying Rick Hahn's story right now? I'm not. Are you like, this is a complete, this is a complete like organization wide cover up to save face. And they're willing to burn a bridge with Keenan Middleton and make him the enemy and make him, uh, you know, the bad guy by saying, oh, he's making this up. By the way, similar to how they did Dallas Keuchel. He's making this up. He's salty because he's unprofessional. What yada, 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 while ignoring what I feel is blatantly obvious, which is that Tim Anderson is a problem. Yoan Moncada doesn't care and is a problem. Eloy might be the most loved dude in there, but he's lazy. Yasmani Grandal has a lot of problems that we're going to talk about, but there are problems beyond this baseball player, that baseball player. These guys don't look like they're ready to play ever. And isn't that what Pedro Grifol swore that he was going to fix? I mean, he came, he came in saying, you know, last year we saw when I was with Kansas City, we saw how talented this team was. And, you know, one day they would look like they were the best team in the American League. And then the next night it's like they weren't even prepared to play. But that's not going to be the problem when I take over. And guess what? It's worse than it was last year. <laughs> so last year they went 500 as bad as it was. I mean, they still won 500. So we have to talk about Grafol. I think we'll get to it at the end because as we get through all this stuff, 
I want to circle back and figure out or at least discuss what we each think needs to happen um, given what we've heard and what we know. And I think Grafol will fall into that for uh, both of us. So we, we will talk about him a little bit, but. Well, here, here's the part that is the most frustrating to me in all of this. It's that this cover up that you, you called it a cover up. First of all, the fans aren't buying it. Second of all, it's not going to work among players and the White Sox who are probably going to I don't, know, I don't think they up, expect it to though. Well, here's here's what I'm thinking. The White Sox who are probably going to be a top 5 pick in next year's draft and as a big market team, they're not going to be able to tank again next year. There's there's really no well, All right, I know where you're going with this. I know where you're going with this. We're going to talk about that later because this part, this this goes to solution and I don't want to get there yet. We're not done through, we're not through the weeds yet. We got to get through the weeds and then we can talk about what it means moving forward. And if there's a solution, what the solution is, but I, I, I think, think you're I'm getting, offering a solution. I think I'm identifying another, I know what you're going to, I know where you're, I know the rabbit hole you're going down and I think that is a good thing to bring up. Just, let's just, let's finish the weeds first and then we'll All come right. back to that. Because this is not over. It's uglier. I don't know, and ugh, I I half have to red flag this because it has not been corroborated by anybody. It was vehemently denied by the player that was accused of it, and I'm not sure we will ever know until more players that are currently on the White Sox leave the White Sox. I mean, frankly, I'm surprised. So I'll just say, Shane Reardon... Uh, reported today on 670 an altercation that happened the day before the all-star break where Yasmani Grandal was allegedly upset. He was not in the lineup, wanted to leave early and was complaining about not being able to leave for the all-star break early. Tim Anderson sitting in a cold tub or whatever, heard Yasmani Grandal complaining and spewed something off like F him. I'll pay for his ticket if he wants to get out of here. To which Yasmani Grandal responded by walking across the room, slapping Tim Anderson across the face, and the two had to be separated. That was the report from Shane Reardon on 670. Uh, frankly, I'm surprised if that is accurate, that somebody like Keenan Middleton, who was airing out dirty laundry, would not have brought that up. Like, if you're bringing up the guy sleeping in the bullpen and the and the dude missing meetings... Why not bring up the fist fight that happened between two players that seemingly had no consequences for either one? So that was my initial reaction to it. Um, I think if it is true, it's a very bad look, obviously, for Yasmani Grandal. I don't really have an issue with what Tim Anderson did in that situation because, you know, it at least showed that he wants people who want to be here and he's fed up with people being bad teammates. And I think that's, uh, a better sign of Tim Anderson than what we've gotten recently. But uh, I mean, do you make anything out of this rumor? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say about this. I don't know if it's true or not. Yeah. It's really hard to tell because obviously Grandal is going to deny this to the media and there's not really a way for us to know. I mean, you know, this is not going to be something that Rick Hahn stands up at the mic and advertises. So if it did happen, uh, that that's a really bad look for Yasmani, and 
I think that it would probably be best if he is uh, sent packing, but there's not like, really how a way is he not like had that happened? How is he not already gone? Well, that that's my thing is like that kind of leads me to believe that it's not true because for a guy on an expiring contract who's making a lot of money, not having a very good season, and now you've got probably his replacement in AAA, it's like. There's no reason you could to have keep potentially this guy if he's a problem. Yeah, you could have kept him to the deadline to see if you could, you know, covered it up long enough to trade him. But the deadline's gone. There's no reason to have Yasmani Grandal around here right now if if he truly is that kind of guy in the clubhouse. And you know, he was implicated by Jesse Rogers as well. But you know, it, being implicated as a not a friend of the pitchers is a lot different than you know slapping your teammate while he's sitting in a cold tub. I mean, that, that's a crazy leap. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a guy being kind of a jerk is, I mean, that's common. Yeah, there's a uh, lot of guys. Four like, or five of those on every team in baseball. Joe Kelly, that, that guy was kind of a jerk, but he didn't get was into he? fights with any teammates. Joe Lance Kelly's Lynn, kind of a jerk. I, I'd I say like Lance Lynn was kind, kind of a jerk. a jerk, but he didn't get any fights with any teammates. So, like, there's a big there's a big difference there. And like maybe maybe Yaz, you know, isn't the nicest guy in the world. Which every interview that I've heard from Grandal, he seemed like he's a good guy. So, but we don't know what happens behind closed doors. But I don't know. I I tend to lean towards I don't think that story's true. But again, not really something that we have any way of knowing at this point. I mean, there could be a lot that hasn't come out that you know these guys just don't want to throw it all out there. So. Here. Just Here's for something for you. purposes, but I I went back and forth on what I believe about this, and here is you know tinfoil hat conspiracy theory time that I unfortunately think I believe. Uh, Footlong Comiskey Dog, uh, the famous White Sox Twitter account, which I normally don't uh, see eye to eye with very often, said. Pointed out something interesting, said, anyone finds something weird about the timing of all this? Rogers goes on and talks about how Yasmani's a cancer. Then all of a sudden, it's okay to drop an altercation that allegedly happened. I'm all for the kingdom falling, but only if the info is correct. Uh, And, you know, of course, they're going to deny it. But is it possible that Yasmani Grandal is a bit of a sacrificial lamb here? We know that information gets leaked from upstairs in the White Sox front off, like front office and ownership all the time to people that then goes, you know, public and creates narratives about the team. I don't think it's impossible to say that the White Sox, by painting Yasmani Grandal in a bad light here, who could potentially be on his way out of the organization and will not be back next year can create this stigma of purging their problems from the organization when in reality they've moved guys that were going to move on anyway. You keep a guy like TA around and you say, well, your grand doll was the problem. Other guys were the problem. And you run the same old BS out there. I don't think so that's you think impossible. The, you think it's possible. The white Sox aren't like, really, I, I don't, I don't think Shane of- Reardon made up a story. I don't think Shane Reardon made up a story, went on the went on 670 and spewed spewed it knowing it was nonsense. Shane's not that kind of guy. No, I, I don't either. I, but I did he, he get information from somebody this. who had motive 
to giving him that information, knowing that he's, you know, a radio guy, knowing that it would get out there, knowing that Yasmina Grandal would at least be convicted in the court of public opinion and sent out of the White Sox organization. And they would say, see, look at all this purging that we're cleaning our hands of. Look at all these problems that are gone out the door. And meanwhile, T.A. looks like the good guy who defended his team. Meanwhile, people aren't looking at Eloy Jimenez or Yoan Moncada being lazy because Jerry knows upstairs that third baseman's getting $24 million next year and he's going to be on the roster. So you need, a, you need a way to make yourself look better. Making the guy who you're about to get rid of look bad is a pretty good way to do it. I mean... It's possible, and, and Shane has done interviews with Rick Hahn before, so we know that he's got some people that he knows with the White Sox, and yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think that's something that he would completely make up. I think he was told that by somebody. The question is, who was the person, which we're never going to find out, but are they reliable? Is this information that they are getting because they know it happened? Is it information that they are strategically leaking. So he will, you know, tell the story for very, whatever reason maybe, but it's, it's a it's very important nuance in sports in general and sports media in general is information is leaked strategically all the time. And sometimes it's very hard to sift through all the BS and it's hard to figure out, you know, what is true and what is false. And all of it kind of gets, you know, remembered as fact and in reality a lot of it is not a lot of it was out there for a purpose and a cause at the time but when the sources of information that the media comes out with are agents players front office executives and coaches those agents players front office executives and coaches all have certain angles that they're looking to benefit from giving out information and so i would just implore fans out there to ask yourself, one, where did this information come from? And two, uh, to whom does it benefit for this information to be out there? And then make your own judgment. That's all I would say about that. Well, that's the thing. There's two types of misinformation. There's misinformation that is made up. There is a person who decided, I'm just going to cause chaos. I'm going to make this up. And professional media members do not do that. That is for, you know, right. your food burner accounts and stuff like that. <laughs> and then there is misinformation that is given to people for a reason. Maybe it's leverage. Maybe it's, you know, to throw off the scent. But there is misinformation that is intentionally given to people with the – All like, the time. While knowing that it's going to be public and they want it public for a reason. So – what that reason is, who gave Shane the information, whether or not it's true, all stuff we may never know, but it's very, very interesting, at least. This is the last 48 hours of White Sox world, though. Tim Anderson getting knocked out, Eloy getting injured in the brawl, uh, Keenan Middleton and Lance Lynn both putting accusations on the team's culture. Um, you've got then Jesse Rogers naming the names in the article as Yasmani Grandal, Yuan Moncada, and Eloy Jimenez. Then the report that Tim and Yasmani Grandal had their fight in the clubhouse. Uh, there was also something that said Tim Anderson moved his locker to the corner and is very like withdrawn from the rest of the team. 
Pedro Grafol quote today says, the leaders I thought we had in there weren't leaders. Um, that's the last 48 hours. And so, like I said earlier, it, it's as bad as it could possibly be. Uh, the team stinks. Don't the, worry, Trace Thompson is here. The team stinks. Most of the players that you feel like are part of your future have not lived up to the standards you have for them. You seemingly have cancer within the clubhouse, uh, and you don't really know how to get rid of any of it going into next season. And, you know, the big, big brother always watching, big ominous thing about all of this is that ownership and Kenny Williams are uh, the men behind the curtain pulling the strings that even if Rick Hahn is gone, there is not a ton of accountability within this organization for any of this to significantly change. And that kind of brings us to now, which is looking for solutions. And I don't mean that literally in the sense of like, well, how are the White Sox World Series contenders next year? Uh, That ship has sailed. But how do you save face as an organization and have some sort of positive direction going into next season? What all do you need to do? No, I'll let you go, but I'll kind of start here. Um, Pedro Grafol needs to be fired. You believe that as strongly as I do. You can sit here and defend Pedro and say, hey, this is not Pedro's doing, and I would probably agree with you. This is something that preceded Pedro getting the White Sox managerial job. But when you were hired as the White Sox manager, you were hired to bring accountability, to bring preparation, to bring culture to this organization. I'll remind everybody, he sat up there, looked dead in the camera and said, we will prepare every night to kick your ass. Meanwhile, he's got players sleeping in the bullpen and guys missing meetings. I don't really care how you feel about Pedro Griffo as an in-game manager, and I don't think he's particularly good at that. You cannot take this job, prove that you have absolutely no control over your locker room, that you have no standards, that you have no rules, have an awful situation get exponentially worse, and then return as the team's manager. So that is step one. Pedro Grafol needs to go, and the next guy needs to be what Liam Hendricks called for this time last year, which is an authoritarian. I think the White Sox need to set a standard, and Ozzie Guillen said this very well when Pedro came out and said, well, the guys that we thought were leaders in here weren't leaders. Ozzie called him out and said, Pedro, you're that leader. You're supposed to be that leader. That's your job. He's not that guy. So I think you need to find that guy, and for me, that's step one towards having any sort of identity moving forward. Yeah. Pedro Griffol did not start this. I want to make that clear. This was a problem long before Pedro Griffol became the White Sox manager, but the problem is he didn't fix it either. He didn't do anything to fix it. Now, I I don't know what goes on in the day-to-day in the White Sox locker room, 
But I do see the record of the team, and I do see the attitudes of the players out on the field every day, and I do hear the comments of the guys that are lucky enough to get traded to an actual organization where they can look back and say, yeah, there wasn't really any rules. We just did whatever we wanted. Nobody really cared. And that, for me, is enough. I mean, it reminds me of a a politician who identifies a problem from the outside and then campaigns for months saying this is a problem and I'm going to fix it. And then they get elected into office and nothing changes. And it's like, I thought you were going to fix it. No, they they weren't going to fix it. They just wanted to be elected. Pedro just wanted the job. He wanted to be a, a major league manager and now he's a major league manager and he's no good at it. So Pedro needs to go. There's no doubt in my mind. But in my mind, and I know you probably feel the same way, it runs much deeper than Pedro. They, yeah, The old man needs to clean house. Rick well, Hahn needs to go. Kenny Williams it, needs to go. Of course, it, it runs deeper than Pedro, and the organization's issues are beyond Pedro. But I do believe culture starts and ends, at least locker room culture, starts and ends with the manager. I, I think I do believe that. I, I don't think the fact that the team has no culture, that team has no heart, that the team has no rules is necessarily a Rick Hahn problem or a, or Jerry Reinsdorf problem. I don't think you need to be a hardo owner that has, you know, dumb standards for your ball club like the Yankees, who, by the way, are also have their own issues by being very hands-off. Aaron Boone is very hands-off and has no control over that team. And the Yankees have no standards, which I find it interesting that Keenan Middleton's like, oh, the Yankee way. The Yankees don't even know when their own players are hurt. And it's, you know, been the downfall of, for them this season. But regardless, I don't think you need to have a a standard that goes organization-wide. But your manager is the guy that's in charge of that locker room and that clubhouse and is in charge of the way your players prepare. And the same way Ozzie Guillen back in the day would have benched a player, sent a player down, had a player traded because of lack of hustle or poor sportsmanship or not being a good teammate. That's what I've always felt like this White Sox team needed. They need a kick in the butt. They need a hey, your job's not safe. The problem you have is that you paid the players. And sending Yoan Moncada to Charlotte does nothing but get him closer to a beach to party at on his $22 million salary. I don't think he cares one iota if he's in Chicago or Charlotte or on the damn injured list. He's getting the checks all the same. And that is the ultimate issue with this particular group is that they don't care there's no standard and even if there was who's enforcing that because you paid guys with no heart too early so to move forward pedro's got to go you need that next guy in there who comes with his own rules and standards of how we're going to do things and if you're not going to do things you won't play for me I think I think that's what the White Sox that's what Jerry Reinsdorf thought Tony LaRusa was. And maybe Tony LaRusa was that fifteen years ago. Yeah, Tony went sideways. He was a player's coach. Like he was a guy that he was laid back. Like he that's everything that you've heard from White Sox players about Tony 
is that he was kind of chill. He kind of let the guys do their own thing. If you would have told me that's what Tony would have been when the Sox hired him, I would have been pumped up about that. Clearly, these these guys needed a little bit more of a presence that they, you know, held them accountable because it's not working right now. Well, I'm just wondering, like, was Rick Hahn fooled by Pedro Griffol too? Like, did Pedro, did Pedro sit down with Rick and Kenny and tell them, like, well, this is how I'm going to be. I'm I'm not going to let this, you know, BS happen. I'm I'm going to make sure I'm running a tight ship. And then he actually got in there and didn't do anything he said. Or were Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams and whoever else was in charge of finding the manager, were they just not sure what this team really needed? Uh, I think I think who Pedro is is very different from who he presented himself after being hired, which leads me to believe he's very different from how he presented himself to Rick Hahn in the interviews. Um, whether or not Rick Hahn recognizes that, I'm not sure, because it usually takes him a while to recognize a mistake. I think he's looking for every reason in the world not to blame Pedro right now. Um, I mean, he said that multiple times throughout the season. None of this is on Pedro. It's all on me. But the general manager, from my understanding, is not the one in the clubhouse every day. The general manager gave him bad players, but the acting manager has done nothing to switch a toxic culture, so they've both failed equally. Um, Number two, I don't think... I think I'm at the point I'm ready. I've been ready for Yuan Moncada to go. I've been ready for Tim Anderson to go. I'm ready for Eloy Jimenez to go. And I am excited about the idea of moving forward with a White Sox team that I think will get rid of a lot of the problems. Um, I think Andrew Vaughn can stay. I think Luis Robert can stay. I think Andrew Benintendi can stay. That's about it from position players. I don't really care to see anybody else back in a White Sox uniform that plays the field. You bring Dylan Cease back. You bring Michael Kopech back. You got a couple pieces in the bullpen. That's about it. Like, I would be perfectly fine with the 2024 White Sox not being competitive, but being a team that is headache-free, that has Corey Lee at catcher, Brian Ramos at third base, Colson Montgomery at shortstop eventually with Ben Benintendi and Robert and Vaughn and, uh, you know, some of these prospects that you got maybe in the rotation and a new manager that has standards. And that is the only path forward to me for the White Sox. It, you have to, because I'll let you go get into your thing. I'm assuming the fallout of this that you fear most is how players around Major League Baseball will look at the White Sox organization and what it will mean for free agents. I think the only way to avoid that is to separate yourself from anyone and everyone attached to these cultural problems and move in a completely different direction entirely. Yeah, and I don't know if that necessarily means players like every player, it's everything. It's everything. It's but... a- absolutely every player, absolutely every coach, absolutely every executive. I'm realistic here. Kenny Williams isn't going anywhere. Jerry's not selling the team, but you cannot sell to a free agent to anybody. Come play for the White Sox. Things are different. 
if Rick Hahn is having those conversations or Pedro Grifol is the manager or Tim Anderson and Yoan Moncada are on the roster. You can't. It's crap. So the only way to avoid this black eye and being the black eye of baseball is to completely 180. Yeah, I mean, Jerry doesn't do that. That's I don't think that's even in the realm of possibilities. Is it possible that Rick Hahn is the fall guy at the end of the season? Yeah, I, I think, honestly, I think things are trending that way. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Rick Hahn steps down. I say that in quotes. I, I don't think it's actually going to be his decision, but I think the White Sox may paint it that way. Um but I mean, if Kenny and Jerry are hiring the new GM, I don't expect it to be any different. I don't expect the new GM to be able to do what he or she needs to do. I, I don't expect them to be really any smarter baseball-wise than Rick Hahn was, because chances are it'll be someone within the organization. It'll be Chris Getz or Mike Shirley or somebody like that who probably has no business being a major league GM, but Jerry wants them, so they're so they're in and. I mean, that's, that's great. That's, that's all well and good. And I'm guessing the new GM will get to pick their own manager. That's usually how it works, but like players talk, man, they, they do like, I mean, you, you talked about this already, but like, well, like who's going to meet with the White Sox as a free agent and the White Sox are going to say, Hey man, come play for us. You know, we'll give you this money. We've got a great, great culture. And they're going to look at it and say, Really? Because last year you had guys sleeping in the bullpen. You had no rules. You had people missing meetings with no consequences. You had reports of people fighting in the clubhouse. And it's like, what are the White Sox going to do? They're going to be like, oh, no, that that that's we're different now. Like, who's going to believe that? So what the White Sox are going to end up doing is what they did in 2016, which started the entire rebuild, which is they're not going to sign good players because good players aren't going to want to come here. But they're not also going to fully rebuild. So they're going to sign bad players. They're going to sign 36 to 38-year-old veterans on one-year deals trying to prolong their career and throw them out there and probably lose 90 games again and then wonder what's going on. It's but I don't it's care the if they do that. I don't care if they times. do that. But li- listen, one, money talks. Money talks. Whether people want to believe it or not, money talks. If you give a, a free agent... $20 million, $15 million above what the rest of the market's giving him. He's going to come play for you and he's going to deal with it. Number two, I don't believe they need to go outside. Like yeah, in a perfect world, yes. The White Sox clean house. They hire an analytically driven general manager and 10X they're spending on their analytics team and they become one of the better run organizations that knows how to do pro and international scouting really well. And they, you know, become the Dodgers or the Rays or a team that, uh, and Jerry sells the team and they spend money that that's all a, a perfect world. I don't believe they even need to go outside the organization for their general manager hire. I believe you could promote Mike Shirley to GM you could hire a new manager and there is a way forward on selling a potential new white Sox. but it doesn't work. If you don't get the nuts to move on from the players, Yasmani Grandal's easy. He's an expiring deal and he's been bad. That's an easy one. 
Tim Anderson, to some extent, is an easy one because he's expensive next year and has not had a good year, and he has an option that you don't have to pick up. But do the White Sox have the guts to either trade or just cut Yoan Moncada and say, you're a bad baseball player, that's bad for our culture. Do they have the guts to go trade Eloy Jimenez, get what you can, and say, we love you, you're a great, happy dude that we wish all the best, but we want some dogs in here. We want some hard workers, and Eloy's not one of them. If they have the guts to do that, I think there's a world, not where the White Sox are uber competitive in 2024, but where they're not a joke, where they can be taken seriously, and where you can see potential opportunity in the future, whether that be through prospect pipeline or whatever it is. But if you won't move on from these players, you're right, because it doesn't matter who the new GM is. Players aren't looking at the White Sox anymore and saying, hmm, that's a talented group of guys that I want to go play with. They go, hmm, that's a selfish group of guys. I'm staying as far away from there as possible. Yeah, they've really got themselves in a predicament. And even before all this stuff came out, man, we were talking about how hard it's going to be to fix the problems with this team. And everything that has come out over the past few days is just making it exponentially harder. Um, If Rick Hahn is not the general manager next season, it's going to take a brave soul to step into this franchise and try and fix it. So uh, whoever that may be, I respect you. I respect you. I mean, even taking it on. No, let's not act like that. I mean, it's a general manager job, and there's hundreds of people in Major League Baseball right now chomping at the bit to get one for any organization. So, I mean, it goes along with the free agents thing. It's, you know, it's a GM job. That's where everybody, every executive covets, and there's only 30 of them to go around. So, at the end of the day, somebody wants it, and there aren't many, maybe it's the only one available this offseason, and then everybody wants it, because you try and be a GM. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't doubt that somebody will I want mean, it's it. A, somebody it's a will tall do task. It. It's a tall, but, tall task, but... All I'm saying is, the person who does it better be up for a challenge, because it's not going to be an easy job, not even a little bit. And the the ownership requirements for payroll make it hard enough, but having to completely reshape this team and try and stay competitive as they've put out there all for the last three weeks that they, they plan to compete next year. You know what that is, by the way, they've got season tickets coming up, season ticket sales coming up in August. That's exactly what that is. That's why Rick Hahn wouldn't commit to anything until after the season because they want to sell season tickets. So they're going to tell fans right now, we're going to be competitive next year. So they buy season tickets. I don't realistically think that they will stick to that at the end of the season. I mean, any fan this with a future knows it's not happening. I mean, this is a future. Yeah, well, okay, competing and them thinking they're going to compete are two different things, though. And this is maybe a different podcast, but... I, for a while, was kind of convinced that the White Sox were going to try and compete next season, and they were trying to figure out how. And I have since shifted my mindset into, 
I believe they are doing what you say. I believe they are prolonging this as long as possible, trying to cash in as many of those uh, season tickets as they possibly can. And you are going to get to the end of the season and have a similar press conference to the one that you got in 2016, where, you know, it's going to hopefully not use the same words of mired in mediocrity, but say we have a lot of problems that we need to fix. And we think, you know, more of a reset is probably a, a better option for the organization moving forward. And then I think you're going to see Dylan Cease and Eloy Jimenez trade in, traded in the off season because I don't, I, I just, I don't see how you can keep them if you don't believe you're going to be competitive. And I don't know how you're competitive given the cultural issues and the bad, bad, bad roster you have. I mean, that's, that's completely, that's Completely possible. I, I could definitely see it. I, I've been saying this for a while, but I think they will try to compete, but I don't think it's going to be try to compete in the sense of like how we see them actually trying to compete. I think it's going to be try to compete, but their standards, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I mean, you're, you're not expecting them to do have an off season that, brings you into the into the uh spring training saying well they should win the division and and you know super pumped about the team you think that they're going to do some patchwork and you know maybe mix up the deck and they're kind of going to be rolling the dice on a couple career years and hope that the gel mixes and they can win 89 games and make the playoffs which yeah. is what the white Sox do every single year and you know it if they are doing this, let's try and compete. Yeah, that's what it's going to look like. Well, I can tell you a couple of the moves that I'm already positive they're going to make. Noah Syndergaard is going to be on the White Sox next year. He he gave up four homers to him the other night, and I can I could see Rick Hahn up in the booth drooling at the well, idea that's what of having well, him in the pitching staff. If you want an idea of where the Sox are going to go, look at what they've already done which is acquire Luis Patino for cash, a former top 100 prospect that had some upside, but never really worked out. Acquire Brent Honeywell for cash, another former top 100 prospect who has pitched pretty okay this year in the bullpen for uh, San Diego that you now bring him in with multiple years of control at 28 years old, probably trying to capitalize on his upside I think it's going to be a lot of that. It's going to be, all right, well, can we, I mean, they went out and got Tuki Toussaint, a former top prospect who's pitched pretty well for them. And it might be the White Sox saying, can we stick a rotation of, you know, Jake Eater with Kopech Cease, Tuki Toussaint, and Brent Honeywell. And if we get maximum value out of Tuki and, and Honeywell, then we've got a real good rotation. And it might be the Sox going and grabbing, Kevin Biggio or you know some failed player that never reached their peak that they think well maybe we can get the maximum value out of them and find a way to be competitive and it's not going to work but they're going to try and convince you that it will well don't forget the most important move of them all the inevitable trade for Salvador Perez that that's not going to happen <laughs> it's not going to happen it's not going to happen. The and... White Sox apparently pursued Perez up until deadline day, even after making the trades for Corey Lee and for Edgar Caro. The White Sox were reportedly 
in on Salvador Perez all the way up until the deadline. I have a hot take. I'd love to hear it. I don't hate it. I I wanted to throw up when I first heard the rumor. And after hearing all of this crap about the locker room, about nobody being well-prepared, about there not being a leader, about there not being any standards, the realistic fact that the White Sox don't have a catcher for 2024 right now, you could do worse than Salvador Perez. I mean, Kansas City's got to eat a lot of that contract because it's an ugly one. But I don't know. Frankly, I don't hate it that much. Knowing what, like, at least he's somebody who you know is a professional that comes to work every day, that is, you know, a good leader. Um, he's horrific behind the plate, but he has pop. So that'd be nice, uh, you know, because Yasmani Grandal is a super slow catcher that's horrific behind the plate and has no pop. Um, you know what Salvador Perez is? He is a more expensive, worse defensively Jake Berger. That's not, no, he's not. Like he swings at everything. He has, I'll have an article coming out in the next week or so about why trading for Salvador Perez is a really bad idea. So keep an eye out for that. But just to sum it up, I mean, he swings at everything. He occasionally runs into one like Jake Berger. He's very slow. He's terrible defensively. He basically the only thing he does well is hit home runs and he's a good leader. It's it's Jake Berger, but you're paying him more money and he's even worse defensively than Jake Berger is. At the end of the day, you could do worse on this team than have a guy that hits home runs and is a good leader. So I don't hate it. Like you can sit here and mope all you want and White Sox fans everywhere have been doing this where they they moan about not wanting this player and not wanting that player because the analytics say that you probably shouldn't trade for that player right now. And you keep rolling it back with the same guys that suck and are bad teammates. Okay. And by so no I, means, do, by no I means don't care. I, I reshuffle the deck. I don't care who's in a White Sox uniform next year as long as they're new. I don't care. I literally don't care. I don't care who you are, how good you are. If every analytic says you're trash, I don't care. If you're not Yuan Moncada right now, you're great to me. Sign me up. Come on down. Look, don't hear me saying that the Sox should run it back, but there are smart moves to make, and then there's trading for 34-year-old Salvador You're not going to give up anything. Like It would have been an inconsequential prospect to Kansas City who would have ate most of the, the catching – most of his deal so that they can get out from under the money and the commitment. And you would have brought him in here to be your starting catcher next year. And you probably would have DFA'd him after that. Like it, it wouldn't have been a massive, massive move that you gave up a piece for. I'd, I'd have to have seen what the asking price was, but honestly, Salvador Perez has no value to me other than as a person. And I, I wouldn't have given up any future value for him at this point where the White Sox are at. So if you want a veteran catcher that's a good leader, you can get Martin Maldonado for $1 million this offseason. Which I hope they do. But, you know, are we going to sit here and moan about how Martin Maldonado hits 180 when the Sox sign him? Probably, knowing White Sox fans right now. It doesn't matter to me at the end of the day. If you're new and you are proven and or thought to be a decent teammate i'm cool with you joining the team we they need a facelift bad and 
even if it doesn't work next year, reshuffling the deck at least gives you potential to figure out what works moving forward without having this toxic culture eating your team from the inside out. Yeah, they they need a cultural facelift. That's there's no question about that. I I think they need to be strategic though because I think they assembled a group of players that they thought were good leaders this time and it did not turn out that way. So they better make darn sure that the guys they bring in next time are actually going to lead the team. I'd like to I'd like to also ask Pedro Grafol and I I'm surprised sometimes White Sox media fails to ask some follow-up questions that I feel like are really important. He said we thought we had some leaders in here. I'd like to know what Pedro Grafol saw in some of these players that made him believe they were leaders. One of my favorite questions to ask at my job when I'm covering a team in life in general is why? Like, you feel like you've improved this offseason? Why? What did you do to get there? You, you're, uh, you know, you feel like he's been a standout in, in practices? Well, why? What has he been showing you to make you feel that way? Your philosophy heading into free agency is this. Why? Why do you believe that that's the best, you know, path moving forward for your organization? Asking the question why is so important. And I ju- I hear Pedro rambling on. We thought we had some leaders here. Why would you believe these guys were leaders given what they had done, given their body of work, given the accounts that their former teammates had publicly stated about them? And given the fact that there were coaches on this staff and executives on this staff who are in the locker room occasionally that have seen these guys actively not be leaders. I would just like to know where Pedro Grafol got that idea from. And that would be very interesting to me to see how the White Sox assess leadership and why they felt like this group was good at it. I mean, you know, he'd never answer that question if you asked him. He, oh, he I'm, just, I think he would. I, I definitely think he would. Uh, nobody on the White Sox that ever does People, interviews ever answers the questions. They always dance around them. You have to ask it in a nice way. So he says, you know, you saw this, you know, saw some guys in here that we thought were leaders that clearly are not leaders. Well, Pedro, what did you see from these guys when you first took the job that made you believe that uh, th- these guys could be some good leaders? You see what he says. You see what characteristics he was looking for in his potential leadership group. That That's very telling to me. I would have liked to ask the question, though. Yeah, I mean, maybe one day somebody will. But until then, we just get to deal with all the answers that we're given and just live another day as a White Sox fan, not knowing what's going to happen, what wonderful story is going to come out tomorrow that's going to give us content for an entire podcast. Well, I I never would have thought I'd be – wishing for the White Sox to go back to irrelevancy. Like one of my biggest fears with this window ending, this contention window was like, I'm not ready to be irrelevant again. I liked having the spotlight for a couple of years. I liked turning on MLB network or something and seeing White Sox conversation when it feels like the team is often overlooked. And at this point, you just have to hope that you can slide back 
and that the White Sox can be out of sight, out of mind for the rest of the season, like get to the off season and make some changes and then, you know, revisit. But we don't need any more headlines. We don't need any more stories coming out about the dysfunction. And uh, I, I would love to have a season where there's not a national question about what are the White Sox doing? I mean, last year it was, why is Tony LaRusso walking guys on a two one on a one two count? What is he doing? The, like, the year before it was <laughs> why is Tony LaRusso shaming your mean Mercedes for swinging three zero and why is why he are the White Sox the hiring a guy that has two DUIs and just got a new one? Like every year, there's something, and it, I'm just I'm ready. Like like you said, I'm ready to be irrelevant. I'm ready to have a season where the White Sox just exist and just It would play be baseball. nice to be, like, good and irrelevant. Like, it'd be fun to be, like, Texas right now. Like, the Rangers have just been good. And yeah. they're they're just good. And that's it. They're just going to win the division and, like, make the playoffs. And that'll be good and well. And everybody will be like, oh, okay, we'll see the Rangers in October. And th- that's a great place to be as a Rangers fan right now. You're just quietly enjoying your team's success. Um. That's all we got this week. Next week, we will have Chicago White Sox chairman and owner Jerry Reinsdorf on the podcast. He's going to break his silence and answer some questions about the organizational dysfunction. Oh, no, I'm I'm being told Jerry will not be commenting about anything and he will not be coming on the podcast. That'd be nice, though. What if what if we reached out to Jerry's team? Do you think he'd respond? Uh, he would probably respond the same way that he responded to uh, one of the reporters that asked him if he had any comments today, which was with one word, it was no. So that that is probably yeah, the but, response we would get. But I, I think we're pretty charming. We could ask him nicely, and then he might be willing to spill the beans to us. Although, by the way, I might 180 my tune on the organization completely and become uh, – a Jerry Reinsdorf mouthpiece by this time next week. So if he, if he tells me information and becomes my friend, uh, I'm willing to sell my soul to be one of Jerry's guys and completely lose all credibility to uh, <laughs> be a Jerry Reinsdorf mouthpiece. Not a bad life to live seeing as a uh, good job security in that, in that business. Lifetime job security. It doesn't matter what you do. You never have to worry about being fired. If you are fired, they're going to, painted as you just stepped away from your position as well so medical even be hireable somewhere else medical i couldn't reasons, i yeah. couldn't podcast for medical reasons that's what we're yeah. gonna go with moving forward had, uh, had issues with his voice permanent yes. voice issues so yes all right uh that's it for this week we will uh talk next week and hopefully have a little bit of a prospect breakdown with michael suero again who's coming back on to talk about all the acquisitions at the trade deadline gonna do that this week and uh kind of got headlined uh so we got that swept under the rug we're gonna look to revisit that as we try and power through the last few weeks of the season here last few months of the season i should say and get to the off season where the white Sox will have some answering to do until then keep putting crooked numbers up on that board we'll see you next time (laughs) 